Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw, or you can leave a review on your favorite podcast application, or you can share, spread the word about uh, Theology in the Raw. That would be super helpful as well. Also, please sign up if you're wanting to attend the Theology in the Raw Exiles in Babylon conference, March 31st to April 2nd. Space is filling up. It's less than goodness, almost well, just about three months away. So if you want to attend the conference live, then sign up sooner than later at PressAndSprinkle.com. You can also attend the conference virtually, in which case you don't need to sign up soon uh, because there's no limit on how many people can view it online. So all the info is at PressAndSprinkle.com. My guest today is Pastor Jeremy Duncan, who is the founding pastor and lead pastor of the Commons Church in Calgary, uh, BC. And um, yeah, I, I met Jeremy just briefly on Twitter. Somebody reached out to me and said, hey, whenever I hear you talking about church, you describe a kind of church that sounds kind of like Jeremy Duncan's church that he pastors at. So I looked it up and said, hey, let's have a conversation. And that's what led to this podcast. So I had no agenda, no prior knowledge of uh, Jeremy before this conversation. So it was just kind of a free-flowing, raw conversation. And it was super fascinating. So please welcome to the show, the one and only Pastor Jeremy Duncan. All right, hey friends, I'm here with a pastor uh, and future author. Well, you're a blogger already, but you're writing a book, if I can mention that. Uh, Jeremy <laughs> Duncan. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for being on Theology of the Rock. No worries. Thanks for having me here. So this uh, th- this is a really, I guess, a super raw uh, conversation because somebody um, who listens to my podcast, and you know, from time to time I talk about church and church structure, and do we really need to do things this way, and what if we do it this way, and just kind of exploring maybe different ways of doing church that would foster discipleship maybe more effectively. And somebody said, well, you should talk to Jeremy because he's kind of doing a lot of the stuff that sounds like you would like to see done. So that, that's what, that's the entirety of the background of this conversation. So um, can you, why don't you just start, like give us a little like background of who you are and then um, we'd love to hear about your kind of uh, ecclesiological formation. Like what Mm. has gone into your idea of what church is and then, Maybe what led to the church that you're currently pastoring at? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, pack all, the whole story in here quickly here. So I'm um, my name's Jeremy. I'm in uh, Calgary right now in Canada. Um, that's on sort of the west side of of the country. I grew up on the other side of the country near Toronto, and probably like a lot of Canadians, I was sort of um, you know nominally Christian. Our family. Um, we didn't really go to church particularly regularly as a kid, um, but, uh, you know, Christmas, Easter, all that kind of stuff, pretty familiar with it. And then late in high school, I had a friend that invited me to church. Uh, I wasn't, uh, we had been friends for a long time. I didn't know he was into church, but he invited me to his church. I went to his youth group. Uh, I got really connected there, um, took a year off after high school and volunteered at the church and then was encouraged to do uh, Bible college. So I, so I did my undergrad. Uh, got hired straight out of there at a church in Toronto. Worked for a couple of years, and it was good. Like it was a, it was a good, healthy community. Nothing really bad happened. But during that period, I just started to realize maybe this isn't really the the gig that I want it to be. Um, so 
there was some transition there and I left ministry, uh, started my own business. I did some, some web design and graphic design, that kind of stuff in, uh, in Toronto there. And then this church in Calgary offered me a job, uh, or at least the opportunity to interview for one. And my wife and I, at the time, we were living in Toronto. We didn't have any kids. I had a theology degree and, uh, we thought, sure, let's let's give it a shot. Let's go to Calgary and try it out. Like worst worst case scenario, we go to Calgary, we experience that side of the country for a year, and and it doesn't work out. No big deal. So we went out. I ended up working there for ten years. It was um, in the Canadian context. It was a mega church. It was one of the biggest churches in Canada at the time. Um, but during my time there, we imploded. Uh, lead pastor had some moral failings, um, and it was it was very much that sort of. Um, mega church celebrity culture. And so when the lead pastor uh, fell, that was, you know, the decline of a lot of things. I got thrown into a lot of roles that were above my pay grade and experience level. Um, I, I talked good. So I got thrown into the teaching pastor role in an interim basis for a few years at, uh, you know, in my late twenties. Um, and I got to, I got to be the teaching pastor at a church that went from about 3000 down to 1000. And so that was my first experience with a lot of those things. Um, but I stayed there for 10 years, um, built up a, a lot of good relationships and credibility. And then eventually when the time came um, that I wanted to, to plant a church, they had hired a new pastor and they were setting up for a new vision. Um, the church was incredibly gracious to me um, in terms of uh, helping me you know, um, form my ideas and, and, and plant a new church. And so that's what I did at Commons. Planted Commons in 2014 uh, with a you know, a, a pretty solid group of about 40 people that, that came with me from the previous church. Um, at, at the time there, I was doing a lot of young adult stuff. So a lot of us were in our 20s. Um, by 2014, I was in my 30s. You know, like young adult Sunday night church was getting tough because we were all having kids and stuff. So that kind of group came and planted commons. And then it just uh, really took off. So within a year, uh, we were at two services, two years we went to three, then we went to four, um, then we planted a second parish in another neighborhood, um, and uh, and things really grew until we hit COVID, and then everything, you know, went crazy again, and we're trying to figure out what church is going to look like after that. Yeah. So that's that's sort of the story, uh, but, but the things that shaped commons and the vision there came out of, I think, um, pastoring in a a large mega church environment, mm -hmm. learning a lot of the things that they were doing well, mm -hmm. and then seeing a lot of how quickly that could all implode with one bad mistake and wanting to maybe um, guard against that or do some things differently in terms of structure mm -hmm. and, and how we thought about church as well. So Commons is sort of this, I, I think it's kind of an interesting marriage of some of the, the brilliant um, strategic and welcoming and ways that, that mega churches have learned how to you know, create a space that's, you know, attractive to people and yet at the same time push away from some of the structural implications, I think, of, of what that has looked like in my experience anyway. Wow. So, yeah, what are, what are some key values that you did? And I would imagine, like you said, it, it, some of the values that went in were kind of both drawn from positive things you saw in the megachurch and also some things that you saw lacking. So what are some key values that went in the kind of the non-negotiables yeah. like here's what we're going to be about uh when you planted college. right so so when i uh, when i came out to calgary the first thing i started was also a seminary so i did i did my master's um i did an ma in, in theological studies mm -hmm. um dove more so my roots are in the pentecostal tradition okay 
Um, so again, here's another marriage, Pentecostal tradition. And then I went and did seminary and leaned more into academic stuff. My writing is about nonviolence and René Girard. And so I have this marriage of like a bit of Pentecostal, but a lot of academic work, which those don't always go together very well. Um, and so our first value of Commons has always been intellectually honest, um, which is about, you know, pulling those, those pieces together. We, we, we're in an urban environment. We're right in the core of Calgary. So most of our community is, is pretty highly educated. Calgary is already a young, educated okay. city, um, and we're right in the middle of that. Uh, we're like two kilometers away from the University of Calgary, which has 40,000 students right near yeah. us. So that's, that's a big one for us. Our second one is spiritually passionate, which was like, okay, how do I hold, on, how do I hold that mm-hmm. um, with the things that initially draw me into that, that Pentecostal experience and that encounter with spirit as well? So, so trying mm-hmm. to keep that. And the third one was, was Jesus at the center, and for us, um, of course, every church wants Jesus at the center. I mean, we're, yeah, we're all Christian yeah. churches. I, I get it. But for us, that's, that's specifically a particular lens on our theology um, that we're, we're quite uh, upfront with this idea that we, I love the Bible and I study the Bible. And, and my teaching is uh, we tend to teach through books. We tend to be you know, really grounded in that. Yeah. But we're quite clear here that we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. Huh. And Jesus is always the lens through which we're interpreting everything that we read um, and everything that we come to. So, so those are the three main things. is intellectually honest, spiritually passionate, Jesus at the center. Okay. And we're always trying to keep that sort of in front of our community and, and inform that and, and really shape the community that way. Yeah, I'd, I'd, um, I would imagine most churches or pastors or Christians listening would say, oh, yeah, yeah, those are my values too, <laughs> whatever. Um the the first one though intellectually honest I, w- I would love to unpack that a bit more like what does that look like and w- i guess but maybe the pros and cons like what would it look like for a church not to be intellectually honest and and in contrast what does it look like in, in your experience and opinion <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, for a church to actually be intellectually honest this is the thing, right? Any any values, mission statements, visions, any any of these things that churches put together, they're always so interchangeable because we always, <laughs> we always say nice things. The question is, yeah, how do they how do they get lived out? How do you enflesh yeah. them in some kind of shape of community and stuff? And that's that's the real trick of it. Um, and then I, I appreciate you know your comment there because um, I don't want to I, I don't want any of our values to be read as a counterpoint to any other community. Like I'm not. Yeah. I'm not trying to say other churches in the city aren't intellectually honest, okay. um, but I know what that means for me, and I know what that means for our community. So one thing would be, you know, and, and again, everybody's going to have their their different pieces when they come to this, but um, one would be, like, we're going to take the scriptures, as, at least as we read them, on their terms. So I, I actually don't think things like inerrant and infallible and, you know, some of this language that is very modern language that we've applied to the scriptures is, is a particularly intellectually honest way to treat a book that came to us through community, gathering stories and holding them up against each other, you know, and sometimes wanting contrasting ideas to sit in tension with each other. You know, I, you know, I think of you know, the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum both being in the scriptures beside each other. Yeah. One book saying God loves Assyrians and one book saying, you know, God, you know, hates Assyrians <laughs> essentially, you know, and, and, and the community feeling, oh, both of those say something important. We need to yeah. hold on to that together, right? Yeah. So having the honesty to be able to sort of acknowledge the tensions of those things, um, having the, the honesty to acknowledge that a lot of the time, you know, when it comes to translation, um, first of all, I mean, I've done Greek through undergrad and graduate, but but I can't, I don't speak 
the ancient form of Greek that these people were reading and speaking and talking to each other in. And, and the best scholars today will acknowledge that some things we just don't understand and we don't know. We have guesses about these things. So a lot of what it comes down to in intellectual honesty for us is, is being able to admit the, the, the limits of our capacity to really understand what's happening in the text and how we wrestle with that and how that doesn't need to challenge ultimately our faith in the story of Jesus. But it needs, we need to hold it with a lot of humility, with open hands, to be able to say, okay, we're, we're struggling and we're wrestling right now. Hmm. And then on the, the other side is, how do we bring that into conversation with sort of our modern context, you know, where we have, you know, people in Calgary that are, you know, um, wrestling with all kinds of things, you know, in, in Canada, we have questions about, you know, uh, you know, assisted death, and we have questions hmm. about abortion, and we have questions about politics, and, and all of these questions that really have no direct uh, comparison or parallel in the scriptures. So how do we be honest about, okay, where are the scriptures pointing us, but how do we bring ourselves and the spirit and our wisdom and our wrestling to bear, you know, in these types of conversations today? And, and honestly, I mean, this is not a very satisfying answer, but intellectually honest for us comes down a lot of the time to admitting the limits of, of what we can say you know, in absolute terms, hmm. we have this, this trust in Jesus, Jesus is Lord. That's the center of our faith. A lot of the rest of it is, is pretty gray and, and pretty up in the air and, and pretty in flux as we continue to wrestle with each other about it. So, so that's, that's yeah. a lot of what we mean there. And then if you ever listen to our sermons, which I'm not suggesting anybody bother doing, but they're going to tend to be pretty rooted in you know, a lot of context, a lot of translation, a lot of the issues that are going on. So we speak at a fairly high level. Um, and, and that's a reflection of the type of community that lives in the type of neighborhoods that we inhabit. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but we're trying to speak at a level that is shaped by our community and, and by our audience. I would imagine you probably attract a, a decent number of, of seekers, maybe doubters, maybe dechurched or people that, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean that, that kind of vibe that you're describing—that's that's, that's uh, that for some that's an acquired taste. Um, yeah, and and yet for others, it's it could be um, an oasis of within a spiritual journey, a certain kind of spiritual journey. Uh, but I would imagine there's certain people that would have a really hard time with that kind of environment. Yeah. Um, and so it, not just Enneagram eights, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I am. So yeah, oh, you are. <laughs> yeah, I am. So, and so is Bobby, who's also she's our one of our teaching pastors as well. She's also an Enneagram eight. So there's lots of excitement around here sometimes. Well, that's so. in, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, um. yeah. Um, okay, so what you're saying here, I think, is an important part of how we form sort of an identity around Commons. Um, one of the, the the sort of predominant narrative that we hear from people is that we are people are giving Christianity one last chance mm. at commons. So this sort of um, you know a conversation around deconstruction that's all over Twitter right now. Yeah. I mean, all of a sudden that's the that's the buzzword and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the story that we've lived for for seven mm. years at Commons is people who are saying, um, I know that Jesus is important to me. I've grown up with this story. Um, I want to hold on to it, but I can't do it the way that I've done it mm -hmm. my whole life anymore. Like it, it just doesn't feel real to me. Um, and I don't want to let go of it completely, but I need somewhere where I can talk about these things openly and honestly. That's 
sort of the the dominant narrative that we hear over and over again. We're sort of like the last stop for mm. people before they give up on Christianity. And it's one more chance for them to talk openly about this. You know, one more chance for them to find a community that's that's open to LGBTQ, one more chance to find a community that that loves Jesus and loves the Bible, but also doesn't elevate that over, you know, the lived experience of what it means to be a Christian in the world. Mm-hmm. And that surprisingly has has connected with two groups is is that one that's on their way out but willing to give it one more shot and i think what we were surprised we knew that was our audience we knew yeah. that's who we wanted to reach um what we've been surprised by is the number of people who have essentially no christian roots who have found this a compelling way for them to explore christianity because another story that we hear probably not as dominant but another one we hear from people a lot is um i don't i'm not a christian I don't necessarily believe in Christianity, but I want to know what Christians believe and why they believe it and how they've come to these beliefs. Mm-hmm. And what they found is they go to churches and they hear, and I, I don't mean this disparagingly, but they hear a very sort of um, light or simple or motivational type of talk. And they're like, well, that's fine. But if I don't already believe that, that's not meaningful to me. Like, I, mm-hmm. I want to hear, give me some of the development of where Christians came from and how we got here. I may or may not buy into that in the end, and maybe I'll you know, I'll leave not agreeing with it or believing it, but at least I'll have learned something about Christianity. And so that's the other group that we've been a bit surprised by is those people who are coming in saying, okay, like I'm not here to be a Christian, but I'm here to learn where Christianity comes from. And those people have ended up sort of sticking around and and becoming part of community, sometimes making faith commitments, but not always. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just feeling like, oh, this is a a good community for me to explore, you know, my own journey as a human being Mm -hmm. and add this this part to the conversation. And we're quite comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if if I'm going to take a a biblical metaphor here, um, you know, Jesus talks about being born again. Mm We often think of being born again as like leaving one set of presuppositions behind and, and agreeing to another set. If I, if I take him just at his word, you know, and that is a metaphor, to me that means I've, I've closed in a whole bunch of ideas. Born again is, okay, I'm open to the whole world again. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're born again, you haven't decided anything yet. You're just, you're just starting over again. Your eyes are open. You're willing to consider lots of things. And that's kind of something that I think we've done um, well, with God's grace at Commons, is, is creating a room for people to like open their eyes all over again, consider something for the second time. You know, sometimes that may lead them to saying, "Okay, Jesus is Lord. I'm going to move down that direction." Sometimes it's just the crack that opens, and who knows where that goes down the road. What What are some unforeseen, or maybe foreseen, but just what are some challenges with yep. having an ecclesiology the way you're describing it? Right. So one of the things is uh, we don't have a statement of faith. Um, if you go to our website, you know, if you look for beliefs or something like that, what you're going to get is is the creeds, the Christian creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Those are the ones that we use predominantly. Um, but our our bias has always been, look, Christianity is you're being invited into a story. And that story has some boundaries to it. Uh, that story has a shape to it. Uh, but if you come to the place where you say, okay, this story that historically has been the Christian story, um, that works for me, then that works for us. Mm-hmm. So we're not looking for a particular formulation of atonement. We're not looking for a particular position on LGBTQ or the Bible or any of that. Um, and that can be like, you know, I think you use that language, like an oasis for people who are like, I want to try this again. 
Mm-hmm. That can also be very disconcerting for a lot of people who you have been in Christianity and have felt the safety of those sort of um, like a, a bounded set mm-hmm. idea of community. And so often, and we knew it was going to be that. I think what was unforeseen at times was um, because we talk a, a little different and our language is a little, um, you know, just unique. Uh, people and 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 let's be honest here. Once comments started growing and we started adding services and stuff, a crowd attracts a crowd. So yeah. people would come from other communities or something, and they would check comments out, and they would love it for months um, because it was it was unique and it was different and exciting. There's people around. And then we would have this thing where three months in or six months in, somebody would listen to a sermon and they would say, oh, you, you can't say that. Like, that's not Christianity. And then we would have to have a conversation about, oh, we've, we've always been saying that. It's just, you know, this, we said it this way, this time, one day, and that sort of twigged something for you and, and set you off. So we realized we had to do some work on the front end when people were coming into commons to say, hey, look, we're, we're glad to have you here. Um, but there is, when we say intellectually honest, when we say Jesus at the center, this is what we mean by this and have sort of a conversation like we're having now. Mm-hmm. Because one, it was not fun to have these conversations with people six months in where they're like, oh, I, I don't believe that or you can't say that. Yeah. But also it wasn't fair to people either. Like like they had invested six months of their life here and now they were realizing it wasn't quite what they thought it was. So, you know, we started a, a little thing that we call for, um, first steps and you know, that, that helps people get up to speed. And we explain some of these things about what we believe and, and what you're free to believe and, and what also you're not going to be able to impose on other people. Um, because that, that was sort of an unforeseen thing was, um, Christians whose Christianity was working for them also being attracted to what we did mm-hmm. and then, and then them being put at unease about it. Mm-hmm. And some of those people worked through it and stuck with us and some, you know, moved on to other places. But, um, yeah, we, we we wanted to find ways to front load a little bit of the tension for yeah, people. Okay. So yeah, because it's it's when there's not clarity up front, there can be confusion and more difficulty. Totally. Yeah, down the road, which is which is a hard tension, right? When you're trying to create a space where there's maybe fewer, for lack of better terms, fewer boundaries, fewer black and whites. Um, even yeah. if people that maybe have a more specific doctrinal viewpoint or whatever they're they're still welcome right but that's not going to be the kind of requirement for people to belong um do, do you have like a formal membership or or like what's the yep yeah because i i have well yeah so no, go sorry well i was just gonna yeah I, I traditionally it's called membership or you know member non-member yeah. I, i've tried to avoid I know. That language, I, I like family guest. I think it's closer to the biblical paradigm where you have, you know, the the the, the Christian family, people who are brothers and sisters in Jesus, right? Um, and even that can be a very diverse, messy family, like families are. But then, and then there's guests. So when you come as a guest, you get served by the family. It's not like, oh, you're mm. when I think non-member. It's like, like oh, that. so you're you just sit over there and you know check things out. Whereas if you're a guest, you get served with a meal and and drink and, and foot washing or whatever, you know, like you're, 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 um, the family serving the guests. Um, but there is that line between family. Like when we have guests in our home all the time, you know, it's like as much as they're, you know, guests every week, they'll come over. They're still a guest until they say, Hey, can I be part of your family? And then, but then that's kind of a different, it's like, well, yeah, but there are certain rules of the, <laughs> the household or whatever that, that we believe are good and beautiful and pure. Um, 
So I, anyway, I'm, I'm rambling. Do you, so do you have that kind of some kind of line yeah. between member, non-member, family, guest, or whatever? So first of all, I, I like that language. I'm going to make a note here and, <laughs> and review it because we do have membership. And uh, actually, specifically in our membership, I was looking for our booklet somewhere. But, you know, what we have this line. I'll mess it up here specifically. But it's like... Um, uh, you know, we front load it by saying, look, we're all members of community the moment we walk in the door and choose to participate. But as a functional level of governance in right. Canada for a charity, we also have a membership. Like we're trying to explain all of that to people like you just said. So but but we just haven't settled on better language for yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but our membership course is part of that. Again, we, we call it first steps, but it's a four week course that you take. Um, it starts with all the front loading, the stuff. The last one is where we talk about membership and what it looks like at commons and what that, that, that entails. And then after that, you have the option of, of doing like a, a little form that's in the back of the booklet and submitting that, you know, to become a, to become a member of the community. Um, you don't have to though. First steps is not necessarily a membership class, but it, it leads to all that. It outlines how everything works. And even from a governance perspective, like, like we are a charity and, and we, we take money and, and we have to steward that well. So how do you know that that's being right. done and how do yeah. we report on that? We want everyone to know all of that up front. And that is, um, you know, some of what I was talking about at the beginning, because the church that I worked at prior to Commons did not have a public membership. Um, they were set up where the trustees were the only official members of the organization. Huh. Um, and when somebody left the board, the board would appoint a new person to the board. Um, and they were designed that way to give a lot of freedom to the leadership and to the pastor. However, when there was a problem, I saw the, the real flaws of that because the community had no real ownership of the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. And so initially, right from the beginning, we wanted a system that was going to say, hey, look, if you're here, we want you to have a say in how we spend and how we hire and how we shape this community and what it looks like. So we have made membership, you know, a, a sort of foundational idea of our ecclesiology of what it means to be a church community. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also tried to lower the boundary or the barrier to becoming a member, okay. but at the same time, on helping people understand like you can do this and we want you to be a member, but there's also, there's also commitment to that. And there's something on the other side of it as well. Yeah. Um, so like to get into the technicalities of it, in our system, you take the course, and then once you do that, you can become a member. That gets approved by the board, and then you become a voting member. And then every year, you have to activate your membership, okay. which is just as simple as, like, there's a little form. You fill that out once a year, and then you're on the voting list for that year. Um, because it's a larger community, if after five years of inactivity, then you get dropped from the membership role. But at any point, you know, if, if so if you forget one year, it's not a big deal. You know, that happens. Yeah. You may even forget two or three a year in a row if you just happen to not be around at the membership time of year. Um, but after five years of inactivity, you sort of get dropped from the role. Now, pastorally, of course, we're reaching out to people and we're connecting with people and we're doing those things. But it's a that's a way for us to make sure you don't just become a member and then disappear. Like every year you reactivate your membership. Mm -hmm. And all you do is basically raise your hand and you say, hey, I'm still here. I'm still contributing, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and then you help us by electing new board members and yada, yada, yada. So, Do you have a requirement for belief, like just a, like the like the creeds or is it anything beyond that? Or Yeah, so we, we say the language that we use again over and over is, is there is no litmus test at commons behind, beside a, beyond a belief that Jesus is Lord. Okay. So. Whatever that means to you, for us, you know, the language we would use to explain that is the creeds. We're actually a pretty liturgical church. Like we recite the creeds together. We, 
do reading responses in the community, all that type of thing. But ultimately, what we say to people is there's no litmus test beyond, you know, professing Jesus as Lord. So the specifics of that, what you believe on this or that topic um, is not going to prevent you from becoming a member. Um, it's it's more a commitment to Jesus and the way that you're going to carry that in community, right? Mm-hmm. A commitment to the people around you. Yeah. So, for example, you know, for a hot button one, there's LGBTQ. Yeah. Uh, as a community, we say, look, we, I don't I don't really care what you believe about this. I care about how you live in community with the people near you. And everyone in our community is going to be treated equally, which means as a minister, I do perform, you know, LGBTQ weddings. Our, our community will do that because we're going to treat that family as equal to any other family. But as a member, you don't have to have a particular belief around that. You just have to be willing to share communion with that family, to have them in your home, to sit with them, to, to be in community with them. Because again, I, I'm not that convinced our beliefs are nearly as important as yeah. the way that we live them out in community. I think sometimes in Christianity we have that a little bit yeah. backwards. I, I think I don't think our beliefs inform our actions as much as our actions inform yeah. our beliefs. No, so. no, yeah, that that's been, uh, I think, psychologically pretty proven over the last 10, 20 years with a lot of right. stuff in cognitive research. Um, uh, I'm curious. So with, I mean, and not really necessarily LGBT in particular, but is there any kind of sexual ethic standard? Like if a polyamorous couple came in, they would be right. welcome to the membership or somebody who's having an ongoing affair or open relationship. Or I mean, is there yep. any kind of sexual ethic that a member would have to embrace and what would be a, yeah. So we do actually talk about that um, within our within the framework of LGBTQ inclusion. Um, we don't have like a list of things like this is out of bounds and this is in, but we do talk about the biblical narrative pointing us towards a constellation of ideas within our sexual ethic. And so we talk about you know procreation and partnership and monogamy and fidelity. Um, and so we say like all of these things is what what the scriptural narrative is orienting us towards. In any particular relationship, we may um, be moving towards some of those and be falling short of others. And so the question is, how on a on a whole are are, are we deciding this is healthy and and good and and pointing towards the heart of the scripture? So on an individual basis, we are having conversations with people about what does that look like? Are you is if you're in an open, you're having an affair and that's open right now. That that to me feels like you're moving away from you know, fidelity and monogamy as, as the core piece. Mm-hmm. If you are in a situation where, look, there's a, there's a marriage that has broken down and, and it's irreconcilable and that's acknowledged by both parties and there's a movement towards something and you're other in another relationship and it's messy right now, we would probably say, okay, like, like we get that, but how are we moving to something that's healthier here right now? So we don't have a list of this is in, this is out, mm-hmm. but we do have these sort of core ideas that, that we call a constellation of sexual ethics. So Procreation, okay. partnership, monogamy, fidelity. So polyamory would be sort of outside of the bounds of that. Okay. Um, and and we recognize there's there's tension with all of these things, right? Like yeah. it's much easier when it's hey, it's a man and a woman, and that's it, because that just you know settles it on a lot of things. Yeah. But the complexity of of how relationships are forming now, how we're understanding sexual ethics today, are are hard, and we're yeah. we're wading into the mess of it with all of it because in a church like Commons. These are not polyamory is not a theoretical conversation. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I I wish that was as simple as a statement on our website. That's that's a conversation that I've had before with sure. with people in community, and so how do we honor that person and love them, but also acknowledge, hey, this is this is where we're moving as a community. 
I'm curious so. why why what would be the logic of saying polyamory? And I'm just thinking out loud here. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be moving away from f- fidelity, or because I mean, it, you know, it's 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 consensual. It's it's yep. um, could be very faithful. Could be more faithful than yep. even a monogamy or, or what would be the <laughs> yeah like. Um, uh, Two people rather than three, you know. Right. Um, so, what would be the, in your mind, like the moral logic of saying polyamory is moving away from the center? Mm-hmm. So this this would go uh, essentially right back to the idea of around. Um, well, we would call it intellectually honest, but how we read the scriptures uh-huh. is that what we're not looking for is like a verse. We're looking for a, a narrative trajectory that informs us about what it means to be human and, and what it means to be moving towards the heart of God. Uh, because I think for, from a polyamory perspective, I think you could argue that there's, there's a lot of polyamory. You know, obviously, that language doesn't line up you know, properly with what we would see in some of the scriptures. Um, because I think polyamory does have qualities um, that are much more faithful than the polygamy we see in different expressions of the scripture. Uh, But certainly there is is room for that. Um, However, I think when you see the trajectory from Genesis uh, through some of the history where you see different sexual ethics forming and shaping through the era of the kings and and the nationhood, but then back into the Christian era, it seems to me like like that movement towards uh, polygamy away from monogamy was a function of, you know, societal creep um, and the function of needing to essentially make as many babies as possible yeah. um, to have a functional pre-modern society. And then the movement back into the Christian era, moving back towards this idea of, of monogamy again. And so that's one where I would say, okay, the, the biblical narrative on the whole is pointing me towards this idea that that this deep, intimate connection with another human being is is part of that core narrative. But again, we're we're very much into you know subjective readings of of where is the narrative taking us yeah. rather than here's my verse that's going to tell me this is okay and this is not. Right, right. No, no, it's helpful. Um yeah, polyamory is a tricky one. I mean, for various it reasons. Is. I mean, it, it all depends on what you see as kind of the the fundamental well, the just the foundations of what is upon which you build a, a, a sexual ethic, I guess, you know, if, if it's yeah. consent and lack of harm, then it's hard to, I think, consistently argue for duality. Um, especially when you have Agreed. themes of Trinity and, <laughs> um, you do have yeah. plural marriages that, you know, like you, I think the narrative shape, I, you know, it seems, it seems fairly clear that it, um, seems to be departing away from God's creational design. Um, and yet you do have that weird passage, and I don't know. What to, I never know what to do with Second uh, Corinthians. What is it, twelve or whatever? When or ten? Twelve. When God's kind of talking to David because after David slept with Bathsheba, and God's like, yeah. "Look at all the things I've done for you. I bless you with this kingdom. I bless you with this. Look at all the wives I blessed you with." <laughs> like, yeah. and then you'd go and do this to me. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa! Are you listing all the yeah. wives as one of your blessings? A part of that's probably the the ancient context, and you know. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a great, people ask me about that verse all the time. And I'm like, I, I don't have a great. Yeah. And I mean, I, for, yeah, for me, what I would say is I, I think, I think scripture, scripture breathes a lot better for me when it's understood as this, you know, partnership between the human and the divine, mm-hmm. uh, where, where God is speaking through 
cultural norms and narratives. And, and, and what the, the blessing of God is not some objective expression of God's ideal. The blessing of God is mm-hmm. the blessing that's experienced by us within our cultural context and moment, right? Yeah. Like, I think, I think there are blessings that I experience and I recognize them as such because of the way that I've been shaped and formed by the society that I've grown up in. Sure. And God says, oh, okay, that's good. Like, Jeremy, I'm, I'm glad that you experienced that way because I love you. Yeah. But that might not ultimately be the fullest, truest expression of, of how I will know myself and God, you know, in eternity, right? Mm-hmm. So, so blessing to me is always sort of how you experience things, not necessarily the, the pure objective expression of mm-hmm. God. And so mm-hmm. when I'm able to read a passage like that as, oh, how is David experiencing that? And how is God honoring David's experience and wanting to, to find the good in David's experience, but not necessarily a reflection of God's character, mm-hmm. um, other than God's goodness, um, yeah. then I'm able to, to make more sense of that larger scriptural narrative. Because it gets really tough if you're going to try to line up every verse with each other. It, it, I mean, not, yeah. frankly, I just don't think it works particularly yeah. well. And this is what I'm acknowledging in terms of a sexual ethic at Commons is um, we recognize that, that this is hard and this is why we're in conversation with people. And this is why we're willing to listen and learn. Uh, because you know, you can make this arg- arguments for or against homosexuality and different things. Like, like procreation is one of the things I see as, I think, I think that's a core idea of human sexuality. Um, but, you know, my wife and I were married for more than a decade before we found out we couldn't have kids. Mm. Now we've got two adopted kids. They're wonderful. We've, we've grown our family in different ways. And, and that's been an incredible blessing um, to us. Would I say that the fact that Rachel and I can't have biological kids is part of God's design for human sexuality. Hmm. Uh, no, you know, like I, like I, I wouldn't make an argument for that be, because out of my life, but I would recognize God's blessing in adoption and the way that we formed mm-hmm. these things and shaped these things. So in one sense, I don't have a problem acknowledging that my sexual experience does not reflect the full countenance of, of what human sexuality can be or would be sort of in, in the mind of God. And yet there's this graciousness, this condescension of God that says, oh, but, but there is good there. There's good yeah. for you, David. There's good for you, Jeremy. You know, how do we honor mm-hmm. that? And, and that gets really hard. Um, and it, again, you're not getting too hung up on sexuality, but it yeah. invites us into the complexity of what it means to be community with each other, yeah. wrestling with all these things and trying to honor each other's stories and, and bless each other without saying, here's the line and yeah. You know, and I can't, I can't move beyond that. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too caught in the weeds of sexuality because we—that's not like. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> had all, but I, do, I do have one more question about procreation. Like yeah. I, and I know my audience is really wants me to probably dive into the LGBT stuff. I'm gonna leave that alone. That's how yeah. I had you on. But um, uh, the procreation piece—I remember I, I read that on your website. And that that was a little like, oh, I, usually I see that on the, you know either Catholic type sure. ecclesial context or or maybe even some more far not far right but more conservative sure. reform context can you unpack how you have v- thought through procreation as kind of an, an and I'm using that very broadly not that every relationship must result in that but you obviously Absolutely. have yeah, exactly. this idea of procreation as as somehow integral to our understanding of sexual ethics can you unpack that a little bit mm-hmm. Because I've, I've been personally, so I've been think, like think, really rethinking a lot of this. Like it's so, um, it's a genuine question. Mm-hmm. No, and I think I think you're totally right. I, th- I think that's part of what we're what we're trying to acknowledge is, of, of course, procreation is is part of sex. I mean, that's uh, part of being a 
you know, an animal on this world, every animal has to be able to, to procreate, to continue the species along. Um, and that happens through, you know, our, our sexuality. Um, what we're trying to, to say with that is, um, is yes, let's acknowledge that, but let's also acknowledge that as human beings who have transcended purely, you know, just, just the propagation of the species, we have also added all kinds of things into that connection with each other, intimacy with each other, pleasure with each other, all of these things that go along with that. Now, you know, why do we get so much pleasure out of sexuality? Well, because of procreation, because that's built into our evolution that drives us to continue the species, right? So even when you acknowledge sexuality and sexual ethics as having transcended just procreation in the human species, the reason for that is because of the evolution of the human species that has driven us to want to procreate. Like the, that's why we have intimacy. That's why our brain releases oxytocin when we have sex. That's why we enjoy it so much. So for us, it's sort of acknowledging um, all of this is intertwined together. Yeah. And when you try to get so, and again, left and right are not the right terms for no, this at all, yeah. Yeah. but when you try to go so far to the left to separate you know, the biological function of, of why we enjoy sexuality from, you know, the, those higher level drives. I think, I think you, you're not being honest about what it means to be, you know, um, an, an animal at, at some level, like an evolved species. And at the same time, when you try to reduce everything down to just those things, mm-hmm. you're not acknowledging the complexity of what it means to be human now at this stage of, of the story. So, when we say that, we're not trying to, yeah, go back to some rigid Catholic understanding of human sexuality, that the highest purpose is procreation. We're trying right. to acknowledge that as, a, as, a, as an evolved species, we move from there and then we add these layers of complexity on top yeah. of it. it. I mean, it is just from a natural law perspective. And this is something where like <laughs> secular evolutionary biologists who don't have a dog in any kind of like ethical fight have an easy they can talk about this mm-hmm. much more freely because they just say yeah right. it just seems so obvious that there's so much about the sexual dimorphism of homo sapiens that is structured around procreation all the way down to different bone structures and external internal anatomy that the things that separate male from female um at its most basic level is, is somehow related to procreate even, even the different hormone levels are related yep. to procreate i mean there's so much that is mm-hmm. pointing to this is not an essential i'm gonna be really try to care for my language here so if i if i I'm, but i'm also thinking out loud i'm not gonna go back and edit this so just forgive me you know if i but like so much of our just image of God bearing it, like our visit, our, 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 our right. the, the essential structure of how God has created humanity is pointing towards this re- potential, if I could say it like that, you know, yep. um, not that the purpose of every relationship must, must result in that, but at the same time, that's pretty big. Like the basic things that separate sure. male from female, the most basic way of structuring humanity is somehow connected with our procreative potential. Like that has to mean something, right? It's, yeah, and, and I think that's where, you know, we have this, th- there's no point denying that, but but the thing is you don't need to either because you can acknowledge like, so my dog has the same, you know, right. procreative wiring built in, you know, like that's part of what it means to be alive. Everything, everything 
evolution has wired that into everything. Hmm. So there's no point in pretending that doesn't exist. At the same time, we can acknowledge that being human, mm -hmm. there is something somewhere along the way that transcended just those, those biological wirings. So mm -hmm. the way that we speak, the way we think about ourselves, mm -hmm. the fact that we have language, all of these now have created new imperatives on top of those, those mm -hmm. hardwired ones. So so to pretend that we don't have the biological wiring is a mistake. To pretend that we are only our biological wiring, I think, is to deny the image of God, that creative element that is now layered on top of us that allows us to take those biological urges and transform them in all kinds of different ways. You know, people who experience their gender in different ways than their biology, who, people who experience their sexuality in different ways. Mm -hmm. That is also, too, part of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. The biological wiring is part of what it means to be alive, mm -hmm. you know, to be a, an evolved thing in the world. To transcend that, to add layers on top of that, is part of this unique expression of, of the creative God, the image of God that, that's in us right now. And that's what I think we're wrestling with today is recognizing, oh, there's, there's layers to this story. There's layers to what it means to be human. I'm not just this, this ball of biological urges. I'm also this, and I don't, I don't like the duality of body-spirit, so I'm not trying to yeah. say that. But I'm saying this this consciousness, this ability to transcend that is also part of what it means to be human. Yeah, you can't reduce what it means to be human to just simply our biological state. It's like right. It's it's more than that, but it's not less than that. It's you know, um I yeah, it's a hard tension, right? You know, because there's certain people that <laughs> you can go off the rails in both directions where you kind of deny or significantly downplay the bodily bodilyness of our existence, which I yes. think would be problematic on so many levels and yet we don't if you just are a strict materialist and reduce us simply to right. you know that that's wrong too um how, how do you balance and this is kind of woven throughout a lot of what i hear you sure. saying um just that the tension between and i don't um again i'm trying to find the best wording here um mm -hmm. kind of the the tension between the subjective reality of in interpreting the Bible, um, mm -hmm. interpreting the faith, interpreting the story, identifying pieces that resonate with you and me and other people, like the, that can fall into a pretty subjective arena. Um, and yet the other extreme again is, you know, no, here's the exegetical method. If you just do this, do this, do this, add up the, the meaning of the words, look up the lexicon, boom, bada bing, bada boom, spit out the right answer. Here's where you should land. Mm -hmm. that, that was more the environment I was, brought up when like no if you just interpret the bible correctly you know yep. using a francis bacon method of you know reading a text or whatever then you will arrive at the right answer if you don't arrive at the right answer which is here's we have by the way we uh, for your sake we have the list of right answers right here so if you don't line up yep. on this you didn't you know so i i see problems to both views because yeah i think you and i probably shared the same conviction on nonviolence that right that's the way of christ um but that's, you know, somebody else could say, well, no, like, I don't see that in the story. I, I do see mm -hmm. militaristic action as a more beautiful way to address evil and stuff. And it's like, if you do emphasize the more subjective nature of resonating with the biblical story, then you kind of leave yourself open to all kinds. I don't know. Like, I, yep. th th then how do you... How do you end up saying, no, nonviolent is the more beautiful way that resonates with the creation? Yep. People it's like, well, that's just... You resonate with that, but I don't, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's such a hard. Yeah. Question. So I think, you know, and this is, I think very much, this is 
the heart of what, when we talk about the ecclesiology and how we shape community, I think you're very right. Like LGBTQ for us, and I think the reason is not being the tension point or the breaking point for our church, like it has been for others, is, is because of what you're talking about. This is a way of being at commons. Um, rather, th- so LGBTQ is not the hot button issue. It's an expression of how we've chosen to be together in community. Mm-hmm. Right? We're going to be together around a narrative that shapes us and forms us and draws us together. That's going to leave all kinds of subjectivity and tension. And if this is going to be the community that resonates with you, you're going to find a way to say, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. In fact, not only am I okay with that, I find beauty in that. And therefore this hasn't torn us apart. We haven't, we haven't had the fallout over this piece. Um, you know, another example would be um, baptism. Mm-hmm. If you come and you say, hey, I resonate with this idea that, you know, um, Jesus leaves the one to find the 99 and I'm going to trust that, that God is going to bring my child back to me, then we will baptize your child, you know, as an infant, right? And we will say, yeah, of course, of course we join you in that story. And if you come and you say to us, oh, I, re- I really identify with this idea of taking up my cross and I want to raise my child in a way that someday they're going to choose to be baptized. And we will say, yes, of course, we'll dedicate your child with you and we'll have families stand together. We'll talk about the difference in those two symbols and what they mean and how we're expressing them, what the belief is behind that. But again, that's, that's a core reflection of the way we've chosen to be community rather than an argument about baptism or rather yeah. than an argument about LGBTQ. So... Nonviolence, same thing. Um, the expression is, what do we believe is at the center of of what it means to be a Christian? And I'm, I'm sure you read, but I'm, I mean, I've done a lot of work with Rennie Girard. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's how I come to my views on nonviolence is this idea of, of imitation and scapegoating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the core idea that that what it means to be human is to form communities around outsiders mm-hmm. that that's really how mm-hmm. we decide who who our group is it's not what we share with the people around us it's what we share against someone on the outside and that this is what we've been doing throughout all of human you know evolution and the story and everything that, that's how we became the dominant species in the world is by building stories around who's not us mm. you know <laughs> and the joke i use here in canada all the time is i'm from toronto right so you got Calgary Flames fans here where I'm from, and you got Toronto Maple Leafs fans where I was from, and they're going to hate each other unless you bring up the Edmonton Oilers, right? And then all of a sudden, Flames fans and Leafs fans are on the same side because we all hate the Oilers. I mean, right? Like, as soon as you can give someone an enemy, you're going to, that's the power. And it's so pervasive that we don't see it happening all the time. What we talk about a lot at Commons, and, and really this is, you know, to the heart of how we form communities, is by saying to people over and over again, the Christ story teaches us a different way to be human and a different way to form community. And we're going to refuse as hard as that is over and over again to define ourselves by who's not us. Yeah. So, you know, we use centered set language. That's helpful sometimes for some people, for others it's not. But this idea that what is drawing us to the center, that's what we're going to share together. And that's how we're going to be community together. Mm-hmm. Do you share Jesus? Do I share Jesus? Yes. Our, our instinct is to say, okay, but how do you share Jesus? What yeah, does that mean yeah. to you, right? And we keep refusing that that story and saying, no, what we share is more important than what we don't. And that's always going to draw us into the center. Another metaphor we use a lot is, is you know, gravity. So we'll say if, if Christ is our son, you know, holding, and we're all planets orbiting around that, um, you and I should be able to be on opposite sides of the sun, and trust that we're being drawn in and we're orbiting around the same story of Jesus. 
and yet find ourselves on completely opposite sides of, of any particular issue, you know, because we're in off sides of our orbit. If you and I meet each other as strangers on the bus and we're on opposite sides, we've, we have nothing drawing us together. And so immediately we define ourselves by what's apart. Christ offers us the option to flip that whole story around, to stop being community because we're not pagans or we're not yeah. Muslims or we're not, you know, this, we're not sinners, but to share a community around the fact that, no, we are orbiting Jesus. We are being drawn to the center. That's, that's our source of gravity. And it's hard because constantly, mm-hmm. you know, our instinct is, okay, but what's different? And we just keep... Yeah teaching our community to come back to the center of what do we share, that's what it means to be Christian. The rest mm-hmm. will find its its work its way out. And and it's gonna it's gonna be tense along the way. Is it largely I mean, are you talking mainly about like just kind of a posture of of belief? And I mean, because there are obviously, you know, once you say Jesus is Lord, every other mm-hmm. potential Lord is not. Like there there's yep. intrinsically I don't want to say divisive, because that's not that's exactly what you're saying we're trying not to do, but there's intrinsic mm-hmm. differences that, that right separate. If you are ca- calling Jesus as Lord, you're also saying no to a lot of other things. And yet there's right. very different postures in which you hold that belief. Is that kind of more what you're h- well, hitting on? Or? I mean, it, yes, yes. And no. So yes. So the criticisms of Gerard sometimes is that it's a very, it's a very subjective expression of the gospel. Mm-hmm. I acknowledge that. I understand those criticisms. However, um, I think when you really get into Girard, um, you know, as I have in my, my graduate thesis and some of the stuff I've written, huh. uh, but also, you know, in terms of how we hold that here at Commons, what we're saying is the sin of humanity, all of our sin is bound up in the way that we scapegoat each other. Hmm. Um, the, the way that we sacrifice, right? That something must die for us to be forgiven, for mm. something to be something must be driven away for us to be a community. Someone must be expelled for us to be together. That that is sin. Everything else is an expression of that. My greed is an expression of that because I need to know that I'm here and I have more than you. You know, uh, you know, lust can be an expression of that because I need to know what's mine and I need to know what I control and and other things. Right, right. So so it perverts our love. It perverts our wealth. It perverts everything. When we are freed from that, when we say Christ is Lord, what we are saying is, I'm, I am not going to play that game anymore. I'm not going to uh-huh. define myself by who I push away. I'm not going to define myself by who I scapegoat. I'm not going to define myself by who I sacrifice. So there absolutely is a posture, mm-hmm. but I would argue it's, it's, that is the gospel posture, is I am no longer going to use any violence against anyone who I see as an outsider. Now, can you be outside of that story? Yes, because you can refuse to drop your arms and you can refuse to stop seeing scapegoats. But if you are going to follow the way of Christ, you are going to stop seeing enemies of people. You're going to stop making enemies of yeah. people. And that's going to shape a particular community around that. So it is a posture, but I would argue that's what salvation is. Salvation mm-hmm. is having your eyes open to all of the ways that you imitate violence around you all the time. Mm-hmm. Once you let go of that, there's implications for how you're going to hold Jesus is Lord, right? But every time somebody else wants you to say they're the enemy, you're going right. to say, no. Oh, my watch is talking to me. Every time somebody wants you to pick an enemy, you're going to say, no, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus tells me that's not the way of the cross. That's not the yeah. way of truth. Can you back, because you've mentioned Gerard a few times, for, for my audience yeah. that um, doesn't know anything about him, can you just sure. maybe take a step back? Who is Rene Gerard? And you've kind of already been doing it, but can you 
maybe I, even on a more basic level, unpack kind of the heart of Girard's theology, for lack of better terms. Uh, yeah. So Girard's a, a fascinating thinker. Uh, he's, he's who I've spent uh, most of my time with, uh, theologically. Never met him. He, he passed away, uh, <laughs> you know, last decade. Um, one of the notoriously difficult things about Girard is getting into Girard. So <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll acknowledge that for people. Uh, most of his books are collections of essays and interviews and stuff. And so he doesn't present things in a particularly clear, systematic way. So it can be hard. Yeah. Um, if people are looking for a good resource, I would suggest The Girard Reader by James Williams. That's the best sort of collected way to work through his ideas. But here's a basic one. Um, what he would say is um, humans are essentially shaped by, he calls it mimesis because he's a mm -hmm. theologian and anthropologist and wants a fancy way to say it. So he uses a Greek word, but he just means imitation. That... I don't really know how to want anything in the world. I don't know how to be a human other than imitating the people around me. I learned to speak by imitating. I learned to walk by imitating. I become human by imitating. But so do I desire things by imitating. Like I see you enjoying something and I'm like, I want, to, I want that enjoyment. So I'm just going to imitate you. You know, you really like coffee and you seem to enjoy it. I want to enjoy something. I want coffee now, right? But, but all of our desires are sort of triangulated because they're not really for the thing, they're for the, the thing that we see in a person, right? Because that's, that's how we become humans, how we learn everything. Unfortunately, that puts us into conflict with each other because as long as there's enough coffee to go around, it's fine. But if there's not, mm -hmm. now I want to fight you because I want that coffee. And he says, this is, this is what breaks down human relationships over and over again. And at some point, we spontaneously invented the idea of a scapegoat. So groups of people could take all of their frustration with each other, all of the tension that's built up by all of this conflict and all of this imitation, and we could point it at one person. Maybe someone who offended someone, maybe someone who is you know, not like us, uh, maybe someone who did something wrong, but we release all that tension by scapegoating that person. That could be violently, that could be just you ostracize them, you know, whatever. But together, all of our tensions are relieved and we cohere as a community around that idea. We're not like them. He says that's what religion is. Religion is a way of systematizing that process. Hmm. So as humans, it's not good for us to keep, you know, sacrificing people or scapegoating people. So let's, let's, let's put a ritual to it. Let's, let's scapegoat a goat and let's, let's remind ourselves that we're not like them and we'll cast a goat out every year. And that will remind us we're a unique community different from them. And so Gerard, you know, spends his time exploring all these different religions, the, you know, Vedic religions and Hindu and all these things and seeing the same thing happening over and over again. That's what religions are doing. They're giving us a way to say, we're not them. And eventually, he's French, so eventually he's like, well, I'm going to have to deal with Christianity sooner or later. He's an he's a atheist slash agnostic at this point. And he comes to the Christian story and he says, oh, it's just like all the other stories. They, mm -hmm. they scapegoat Jesus and they do it. But as he, he researches it and he looks into it and he, and he gets involved in the story, what he sees is a story where, no, this is, this is God becoming our scapegoat for us mm -hmm. to open our eyes to it. So God allows God's self to be the one that we push away and we expel and we say, you're not like us. The main reason we do that to Jesus is because Jesus keeps saying things like, look, who's without first sin or who's without sin? You cast the first stone. He's essentially saying, stop pushing people away. Mm -hmm. And that, that's threatening to us because you're breaking down our walls. You're, you're threatening our barriers that make us feel comfortable. So we scapegoat him. But 
the big difference for Girard is every other scapegoat, everyone we scapegoat. So after 9-11, we scapegoat Muslims, right? Mm -hmm. Because that makes us feel safe. But we can also point to Muslims who did terrible things and we can justify that, right? It's not fair that we scapegoat our Muslim neighbor. It's not right or good, mm -hmm. but we can justify it because, oh, but look at what that one did over there. Mm -hmm. With Christ, what he would say is, his language is, because he owes no debt to violence, in, other, in Christian language, because he lives a sinless life, when we finally crucify him, and he would say the narrative is built in such a way that nobody bears ultimate responsibility for the crucifixion, but everybody bears a hand in it. Like nobody gets off free. The disciples abandon, you know, the, the religious leaders, the, the political leaders, like, like the, the story is built in a way to say, we all have a hand in this man's death. But at that moment, just before he dies, he turns, he says, you know, father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They, they, don't, they don't know what they're doing here. They don't understand what's driving them here. And because he forgives us at that moment, we have no recourse to defend our actions. We have no option to say, oh, he deserved it. We have no option to say, oh, because of this. And in that point, if we see the cross clearly, it's like our eyes are opened up. We see scapegoating for what it is. And this is really important for Girard. If you know you're scapegoating someone, it has no power over you, right? If you and I know that, hey, you know, uh, we've got a bit of tension because we disagree on one thing, but, but we still like each other. And then we can point to another person who we both disagree with and we can say how they're a bad person, you know, then, then we feel good about ourselves. But if we know we're just doing that to relieve the tension, it doesn't work. Scapegoating only works when it's hidden from us. You have to believe that the scapegoat really deserves it. And when Christ opens our eyes, now we, we are saved because we're, we're, we're freed from the power of sin, the power of scapegoating. But also, now we begin this process of sanctification where we start to see it all around us all the time. And this is the lifelong process now of becoming a Christian and becoming shaped in the way of Christ, where you have to begin to constantly look for all the ways that you perpetrate violence against your neighbor, you perpetrate violence against other nations, you, you do all these militaristic things, and you slowly begin to let all of that go. That's what we're trying to shape community around is this idea that we've now been saved. We've been set free from this idea of needing a scapegoat. But now we have so much work ahead of us in being able to see it, to dismantle that, to walk in a new way in the world, to believe that we can be loved even if somebody else is loved, right? Like that, that's a big thing for us as humans. I, I can't know that I'm loved unless I know that somebody else isn't, mm -hmm. right? Um, and slowly letting go of all that becomes really important. So, so some of that is Girard and some of the ways is that how I've built on that in terms of my own personal theology and community, but, but that's a pretty decent breakdown in, in what he's talking about. Uh, that's fascinating, dude. So, so he, he had this idea of scapegoating as kind of the core of his thinking before he kind of went to or came to Christianity yeah. and saw Christianity is kind of like, for lack of better terms, it's the solution or the key that kind of unlocks yeah. the, the overturns. <laughs> yeah, his earlier books, The Scapegoat and Violence in the Sacred, he is he is strictly critiquing religious systems of scapegoating, dealing with all kinds of different religious systems in the world. It's not until later till he finally sort of yeah. realizes, okay, I'm going to have to deal with Christianity, that he gets into Christianity and converts. He converts to Catholicism. Wow. Uh, I mean, sort of reconverts or re, you know, because he grew up in France and stuff, uh, but comes to Christianity and, and sees, sees in Christianity the subversion of the idea of sacrifice. Wow. So he would say, and I would agree, the cross is, 
The cross is not the end of sacrifice because it's a big enough sacrifice to cover all sin. Okay. The cross is the end of sacrifice because the cross unveils all of our sacrificing for what it's always been. So this is God saying to you, look, I have used sacrifice to contain your violence and to move you in good directions. Mm-hmm. You know, all through the Old Testament, through all these things, this is still God. This is still God present in the narrative, mm-hmm. moving us forward, but moving us to the point where God would ultimately disarm all of that. So Christ becomes sin for us, mm-hmm. literally. He becomes a scapegoat, a sacrifice. He becomes that for us. And in that, our eyes are opened up. And then there's all kinds of implications for how we live coming out of that. Did, did, he, did he and uh, Jacques Ellul hang out? Like, they similar era, they're yeah. both French, they're both, well, ended up being Christian, both nonviolent. So, I don't know that they hung out, but I know uh, Gerard uh, interacts with Ellul's writing. Uh, I don't know that Ellul, I've never read Ellul uh, specifically talking about Gerard. Okay. Lots of overlap in their ideas, and yeah. I've seen, I have read Gerard uh, speaking about Alul, but I don't know if they ever hung out together or anything, which would have been a fascinating conversation to be on the wall of. So I'm pretty familiar with Alul. I've read most of his works, but I haven't dealt with Alul academically the way I have with Gerard. Okay, okay. Well, it sounds like Gerard is a lot more difficult to get your arms around academically because he's not linear in his kind of presentation. Yeah, Um, yeah. He's, He's a fascinating thinker. Um, you know, again, you know, obviously my convictions are, are deeply informed, but I, th- I think, um, as, as someone who is committed to nonviolence as the way of Jesus, um, what I really think is that in the next generation and the next era of Christianity, what we need is, is a, is a more not a, a thoroughly nonviolent imagination of the cross. I think that's the one piece that has still eluded us. And I think that's what Gerard I don't know that he does it completely for us, but I think he moves us in that direction of saying, okay, what does it mean for us to have a thoroughly nonviolent God, you know, that is not using the violence of the cross to get to God's aims, but is actually undoing violence through absorbing our violence on the cross. I think that's a really important piece because pastorally, um, 10 years ago, pastorally, I would hear questions about, ah, oh, what do we do with the violent God of the Old Testament, right? Like that was a question you would hear. Some of that was, um, you know, Christian hegemony built into people's ideas. They would assume, okay, it must be the the Jewish part that's bad and the Christian part that's good, which is not a helpful way to think about it at all. But, you know, at at a pastoral level, that's the question you would hear. Now, more and more, the question that I hear is, what do we do with the violence of the cross? Hmm. People want to believe in a nonviolence of Jesus. They want to believe in a God that's thoroughly nonviolent. But their question is, but what about the cross? Mm -hmm. You know, to go back you know, decades to ne- and, uh, um, Nakashimi Brock, who's saying like, like this, this formulation, penal substitution on the cross looks like cosmic child abuse. It doesn't look like a good story. It looks like God who wants to forgive, but has to be violent in order to forgive. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to need just at a pastoral level of people in the pews. I think we're going to need better ways to talk about this, to help people see the goodness of God expressed in the Jesus story. And I think, mm-hmm. Gerard points us down that direction. I think we have a lot of work to do on it as well. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think nonviolence is going to be very important, particularly as the violence that Christianity has done to the world mm-hmm. comes more and more to the front, right? Like we're acknowledging that more, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Canada. The vi- my, my daughter's indigenous. The, the violence that Christianity has done to indigenous peoples mm-hmm. 
um, is no longer something that we can just say, oh, that was some bad apples. No, that was built into our theology. You know, the doctrine of discovery that we thought was part of our theology enabled us, you know, it it pushed us towards that violence. So we need to undo all of these things, not just the past violence, but we we need to undo it all in our concept of God. And I think that's going to be more and more important for us. Wow. A lot to chew on, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that, that, I have not gotten into Gerard at all. Um, mm. It's just, no, I got a good, a good friend of mine who loves him. So it's more just through dialoguing with him. Uh, but you've, you've unpacked his ideas better and more clear than, than I think I've ever experienced. Um, and just, you know, for me as a, you know, my primary area is biblical studies. So I'm constantly looking at like biblical theology and the movement of scripture. Yep. And, and that's, you know, I got to a nonviolent position through, the kind of trajectory of scripture, but that, I mean, Gerard, the way you're summarizing Gerard, that, that it's almost like a different, more complex, yet more central angle to the very shape of the story of redemption. Um, right. Obviously, so I mean, imagine, yeah. think, think, t- take that lens of Gerard and now think about the prophets, right? Yeah. So you, you have the, the Torah era shaping this, this sacrificial system to contain that scapegoating. And then you have the prophets coming along and saying, guys, that that's great. I'm glad we have these rituals, but you know that's not really mm-hmm. the point, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's meant to shape you and form you towards justice and care and stop scapegoating, right? <laughs> that's supposed to lead you toward the outsider, the foreigner, the widow. Like it's all there once you once you kind of see it and you unpack it and you see these themes and you can see it slowly building throughout human history, and then ultimately in Christ being completely undone for us. Yeah. Now I think what's you know, what's tragic is the way is that then the cross sometimes has been used to scapegoat all over again. And I think that that is what right. breaks the heart of the divine mm. is when we use a story that was meant to dismantle this to continue to, to push people away again. Yeah. And back to ecclesiology and church, this is why we're wading into a particular way of being with each other, even though it's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And even though there's a lot of tension that comes up because we have a core conviction about what it means to keep Jesus at the center. And again, I mean, I've unpacked a lot of theology here, but that's what I mean when I say Jesus at the center. Jesus undoes all of our instincts about what it means to be human and what it means to be community, which then has implications on how we baptize and how we do marriages and, and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're, they're, they're difficult theological conversations, but we're always defaulting back to, I refuse to have a scapegoat. I refuse to push someone outside community. Mm-hmm. Jeremy, you've given us a lot to think about, and I've taken you over uh, over the time that I uh, ask you to commit to. So, um, tell us really quick: where can people find you? I'm, I'm on your website now, uh, so I guess I'll <laughs> JeremyDuncan.ca is your personal website, yeah. right? And then the church. What's the church's website? Um, the church is Commons.Church. Commons. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we're doing that, and I, you know, I, I. Um, yeah, I, I, there's not much on my personal website yet. I just sent it up. I, I have a book coming out with Herald Press um, next year called The Upside Down Apocalypse, where I'm writing about a nonviolent interpretation of Revelation. Oh, right so a lot of these themes, you know, will find their way in there. Uh, but trying to marry some of the, the biblical studies around yeah. context and imagery and metaphor with a, a particular nonviolent theological lens. So that's that's my side project right now that I'm working on as well. Awesome. And that's, you know, it's pre-order, blah, blah, blah. It's on yeah. Amazon, yada, yada, yada. Cool. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time and uh, for the dialogue, man. I'm, I'm, I, I, I still got a lot of questions and stuff, but uh, yeah, you've given us enough to think about for, for a few weeks at least. So. 
<laughs> no, no worries, yeah. man. It was, it was a great time. Happy to start yeah. with with no agenda, knowing yeah. not knowing where this conversation would go, and end up on one of my favorite. So we're all well, good. That's how conversations should be, right? Just like without. I mean, what kind of normal conversation do you have a pre-planned agenda? You know, unless you're in a, some sort of confrontation or whatever. Um, it's totally true. <laughs> all right, man. Hey, have a great day. Thanks, you too, man. Thank you.